Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. It's Thursday afternoon, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in, so let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Mike Haltzinger said, never feel bad about adding everybody whenever I go live, well, I guess whether it's here on Patreon or Discord, because that's sometimes how they find out. Unfortunately, that is a thing nowadays. YouTube's notification service has been broken for a very long time. You're supposed to be able to subscribe and hit the bell, and then you get a notification on your phone or whatever when somebody goes live, but it's just, it's never really worked right. And there were a bunch of times where friend of mine's videos would go up and they wouldn't even be in my subscription feed. So I would unsubscribe to them, I'd wait like a day, I'd resubscribe, click the bell, and they still wouldn't be in, and then that kind of cleaned up a bit. So. Yeah, I, I wish there was just a very clear and easy way to, to determine all of this stuff. Like, hey, I want to follow Bob, uh, notify me right away whenever they're live, you know, and then everything else I'll just see in my subscriptions and I'll get to when I have time to. And I don't, I just don't think it's like that in any of these services. And the more I kind of dig into all the services, the more I really wonder how many of them actually spoke to the creators that use it, which is a total asshole thing for me to say. I know, I know. It sounds like I'm being a complete know-it-all, but I mean, I've been using these services now for a long time, and it's just kind of shocking how some features that are pretty important are either missing or, you know, they're done the completely wrong way, so I don't know. Um, I'm going to try to remember to continue to at everybody on the Discord server as soon as I go live. I know that's annoying, adding everybody in a server. I, I get really annoyed whenever people abuse that, so I'm gonna try not to do that. If it starts to get really annoying, please just let me know and I'll stop doing it. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna post on the support services when I go live, but if you all really think it's important, let me know and I'll see what I can do about it. And you know, I wish I could say the YouTuber-y thing and say, don't forget to like and subscribe, but it obviously doesn't matter. So <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I mean, thanks for your feedback. And anybody that else has anybody else who has feedback like that about notifications and how I do any of this stuff, I'm all ears. I mean, respectfully, I might not immediately change my opinion and, and do what you suggest, but I will always, always listen. Next up, Inmate302 has two questions, uh, one about the GBS control, but the first is about a Super Nintendo. A friend of theirs has it connected to an LCD display via HD retrovision cables, and sometimes the games have weird artifacts or glitches and the screen flickers. The problem goes away when using composite video cables. Is it possibly a power supply issue, or could it be something else? Well, I think it's something else. However, you said you told them you could try your triad power supply some other time on their setup. So that's a scenario in which if you live close and you hang out over there, absolutely 100% grab your power supply, plug it in, see if it makes a difference. Probably not, but I mean, that's free and you go, and now you have an excuse to go hang out with your friend. So I'm absolutely all for that as testing. But I think this is inherent to how flat panel TVs process video games over their analog inputs. I'll leave a couple links in the description, and this is reminding me that I have to rework those videos into one titled, do not connect your analog consoles to directly to flat panels analog inputs. Someone's gonna really need to help me with a clickbaity title for that, because that's way too long. But seriously, you almost never want to connect original consoles directly to flat panels. There are always some exceptions to that rule. Plasmas are a great example. Many times you get a very good experience. But as I showed in a couple of different videos, 
two things generally happen. First, for whatever crazy reason, you get a lot more lag over the component video inputs, which means even just finding yourself a cheap uh, analog to digital converter that just does that, doesn't even scale the image, you would get less latency going to the HDMI input. Still don't understand that. But also, most, most of the time that I've seen these inputs, they process 240p as if it was an interlaced signal. Because for whatever reason, the TV market never really even thought about old video games in the context of those analog inputs. Those were all designed for DVD players, VCRs, old cable boxes, and never really, they never really had old video games in mind. Which, you know, I know I'm speculating, but I mean, we're well over 10 years into flat panels being mainstream and they're, you know, they're, they just never work right. So my guess would be that try the power supply first because it's free, but you're going to need some kind of scaler. Grab yourself an OSSC, grab yourself, um, I mean, basically anything, a GBS control, anything that would scale it and change it over to HDMI would probably be a huge benefit to you. Um, now, I'm going to leave links in the description to the RetroTank 2X Mini video because that describes a lot of what I'm seeing in the myth-busting display lag video, but the Tink Mini wouldn't really be your your best bet for this because you already have HD RetroVision. You would want to go with any other scaler. But um, So 2X Pro, 5X, whatever, GBS control. But your next question is, a while back you were asking about connecting a modern computer to a SCART CRT TV, and I suggested looking into getting a GBS control or maybe the GBSC All-in-One, which is the project that uh, a couple of people released and now is open source. But now that time has passed and the project is open sourced, they, no one can seem to find them for sale anymore. So should they get one of these ODV GBSCs that have been floating around or something else? So I still think that's a great device because of cost, especially if you could build your own, because then you're talking definitely under 50 bucks for everything. You could have yourself a downscaler if you needed to. You could also, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different things that you could use that for. However, the ODV GBSC is one that seems to be mildly customized. It's like 90 bucks or more. And I think it was made by Bitfunks. Can anybody absolutely confirm? Because I'm pretty sure it's a retro scaler product, which is made by Bitfunks, which is the company that steals from everybody. So by buying that one, you would in turn be supporting a company that steals and funding them to steal other things. Even though this is not a stolen project, you know, the GBS boards have been around forever. GBS control is open source. I'm sure the product has the potential to be legit, but the owner of that company who steals all of these things, I just don't want to give him money. But I don't know. I'm speculating because of the case, but there's a lot of different answers to this. So if anybody can confirm who makes those, that would be really great. But I'm going to leave a link just in case. I certainly don't want to, to throw shade if it's not them. And one of the stores that sells them is also one of the stores that sells some of the other cheaper equipment that probably isn't a clone and it's not even retro gaming related like tools and stuff well not directly retro related so i don't know i'm gonna leave the link hoping just in case but i would love confirmation because i just i don't want to give them a single penny uh, but i do still think the gbs control is a great budget option for this of course the retro tank 5x is probably better but it's a lot more money and you might not need it for anything else 
unless you want to convince your buddy to get it for their TV, and then you borrow it sometimes when you want to do the downscaling. But it, for a budget option, any GBS control, not necessarily the all-in-one, but any one of those projects would should get you exactly what you're looking for, um, including at the end outputting VGA, but then getting the HD15 to start. That should take care of everything. But let me know if it doesn't or if uh, you want me to clarify anything. Lena Blue said they've been a fan of the mini classic consoles all the way since the NES one was released, and they got all of the good ones and the bad one, the PlayStation. And they were also following the development of the X68000Z, which is the 68K mini console, but after seeing its price tag of 350 they thought, why not get a Mr. instead and play all the games without hacks? I 100% support this idea. I think that is an excellent move. Now you have all the mini classic consoles, so you know you're still supporting the companies, but more importantly, you also have these awesome little things that you could display on your shelf that look great. You've experienced the awesome menus, and I mean, they really were beautiful user interfaces, and most of those anyway. And now you can get a solution that's equal to hardcore gamer level, but not hardcore to set up pretty easy. I did that Mr. in 10 minutes video you might want to reference. So yeah, I 100% support this, but their question is related to dual RAM slots versus analog IO board. Will this, will, will there be future cores that require dual RAM? And what exactly would they lose with a DAT connected over HDMI direct compared to an analog IO board? They live in Europe and have access to multiple CRTs with RGB SCAR or VGA inputs, both PVMs and consumer grade. And the only monitors they have with component also have HDMI, so no need for that. It's also mostly meant as a portable solution to take with them to uh, parties and lands, as, lug as well as lugging around multiple consoles without a car is kind of annoying. So, okay, I mostly have an answer for you unless you're streaming and then it might get a little complicated, but I'm gonna answer, assuming that your use case is gaming focused, including if it's on both flat panels and analog. But all you would lose with a DAC, if you just had like a D10 and a DAC, the only thing, and actually if you got a VGA to, or an HDMI to VGA, like the Ranky one I linked to, and then got the HD15 to SCART, and a decent VGA cable, now you have VGA and RGB SCART right there. You could actually just, you know, wouldn't really need the HD15 to SCART for the VGA part, but hopefully you know what I mean. So if you got that, the only thing you might lose is the ability to have digital audio output, which you could try to use an extractor. However, what I think might be a great solution for you is just getting one of the digital IO boards that don't take up the second RAM slot. I can't remember who sells them, and I also can't remember if those were prototypes I tested and not in production. I'm very sorry. That's a curse of doing dev work, is uh, I never really remember what's what. But I could swear they were out there. And that would allow you to have a cool-looking case. It would allow you to have digital audio output, but freed up a second RAM slot just in case. You could even do something like use one of these manual splitters that and have one connected to a flat panel and one connected to your DAC, because these are essentially the same as unplugging and replugging connections, but you could just flip a switch, reboot your mister, hold down the button combination, and either boot into direct video or 1080p or whatever the other resolution is, and that would totally solve it. And that should be perfect for all of your solutions. It should save you a little bit of money, 
and you don't have to worry about future proofing with the second RAM stick. Now, I still don't know for sure if cores are going to require it. It might be one of those things where you have access to all features with it or for things like the Saturn core, or it might just be required, period. So that's definitely something you'll have to follow in the future. But going to direct video using a DAC from the HDMI port is a great solution. The only things to note, you could find a splitter, like this one that I always like, that extracts digital audio, so you wouldn't even need that, uh, any of the other I.O. boards. You could just get digital audio right from this. And in fact, you might even be able to split it for, uh, for streaming. But here's where all the butts come in. The first but is you're going to need to make sure you find a splitter that's compatible with direct video, and not all are. And in fact, I've seen a few brands that you buy a couple that look the exact same on the outside, and one is and one isn't. So that's not a guarantee, both the extracting of the digital audio or splitting the signal to two. And you're going to need a capture card that could handle the direct video resolutions, which will probably show up as something like 1440 by 240. So then you would need to open up OBS and resize that using point scaling. And, you know, it's doable. And it certainly has been something that I've done in the past and proved that it can absolutely work. But it's not going to work with every splitter and it's not going to work with every capture card. So that is when if you want simultaneous dual output, 240p go into your analog and then whatever HDMI signal going out of there, 1080p, 720, whatever, that is when you would really want the analog I.O. board and not using the DAC. So you could have separate controls of each of those. So those are just something to think about. But if you're not streaming with it, it's not really an issue. Maybe try a splitter first because these things are awesome and you'll always end up using this at some point. So maybe you find one that extracts digital audio. Maybe you don't care about digital audio. Maybe you got just... Uh, you're using headphones or something and it's not as big of a deal. All of those things are cool. I just wanted to make sure my answer was thorough and make sure to point you in the right direction. I totally missed the postscript from Lena, but it's an important one. So I'm just going to answer it now in a separate question. Just for shits and giggles, how hard would it be to connect the Mr. via composite to a TV that only has RF and composite inputs? Funny you ask that now. It was complicated a week ago, but now that Sorg has rolled in Mike Simone's cores into the main framework, it's as easy as buying another adapter. So you need analog output from your mister, but does not matter if it's direct video or if it's through the I.O. board. You just need to break it out to that D-sub VGA looking connector. And then you take a device that Mike had made that is now being sold by a few stores. You mentioned you're in Europe, so I'll put a link to the European store that I know of. I'm sure there's more. I apologize if, uh, if there's more and I forgot to link to you, but that's it. All you do is set it to direct video. You put this adapter on. You load up your game. It'll probably be in black and white or look a little weird. And then you just, after the game's loaded, you go into the menu and you just enable S-Video and composite output. And that's it. And suddenly you just get composite video going out to your TV and it looks awesome. So uh, you really asked that question at the right time because the answer a couple months ago was very complicated. And now it's as simple as buying a cheap adapter and, and that's it. So yeah, absolutely the right time to be getting into composite in this video on the mister. Deepin Koo has a couple of questions that they're going to spread out throughout the next few weeks. 
Um, I always think that's a fun thing to do because that way we could kind of go back and forth. And if I answer something wrong or if I didn't get the question, we could always kind of figure it out as we go. And I like some of these long-term projects, but if you've got a bunch of questions, fire away and I'll try my best to get to them. On lighter weeks, absolutely. On weeks where there's a gazillion questions, I don't want a two-hour Q&A, so I might skim through them. But uh, Demon Goose started with two, so let's get into it. First, for high-cost component cables for things like the SNES, Genesis, and Saturn, they didn't realize that the high cost was because of the active circuitry inside converting RGB to component. They just assumed that was expensive. Uh, so that's half right. When you get those higher quality cables, you're actually getting high quality cables. And I'm not being funny. I, I mean, like the cable themselves are very well shielded to the point where when Steve from HD Retrovision released the PlayStation 2 ones, which are much cheaper because they don't have any active circuitry in them, but the ones for the PlayStation 2 and 3 performed slightly better than the original Sony's. And you could only really tell the difference if you're running 1080p through a component, which most people wouldn't, but still, it just was proof that you really are getting a very, very high quality product. And yeah, you know, you got to pay for it, but it just, you know, it kind of, that's just who HD Retrovision are. They'd rather be a little more expensive, but you get the best that they know how to provide. So yeah, it's a combination of the active circuitry, the cables, but also in mass manufacturing, quality assurance is huge and so expensive. Steve spent years designing these, these special brackets and, and different test jigs that would allow their manufacturing plant to test every single cable before shipping. And that's the type of quality assurance that, you know, it doesn't come cheap, but it really pays off at the end. So yeah, there's a lot of really good reasons to spend a lot of money on it, but you don't necessarily have to, which I think that's what you're getting to. Um, now they seemed, uh, or they also avoided RGB because it didn't support all of their CRTs, which is common if you're in the US. Uh, but now that they're seeing there is an option from RetroTINK, an RGB to comp converter. They wonder if they should have started collecting RGB cables instead and saving some money. Doesn't matter. And I mean that with, with love and respect. You could have a whole bunch of RGB ca cables going into a G comp switch and you could spend a ton of money on super shielded RGB cables and then buy the RGB to comp. Or you could just get all HD retrovision cables or uh, retro gaming cables also has their component video line as well. You could run it through a G comp switch and end up spending about the same at the end of the day. But it all comes down to the quality of cable. If you get some $2 AliExpress cable for that's RGB SCART, it's probably going to be junk and most likely uh, could have the potential to be dangerous because a lot of these SCART cables do have passive circuitry in them. But getting a decent cable isn't going to be that much cheaper than an HD Retrovision. So, you know, I really think that it's one of those things where anytime you get into a project, you could always look back and find ways to nitpick yourself and you know, save money here and there. I certainly obsess over that, especially when I'm making videos recommending that people buy things. That really weighs on me. I don't want to just make a recommendation, have somebody drop a couple hundred bucks and go, ah, they could have done that cheaper. Well, whatever. Like, I, <laughs> it's a big deal to me. But, um, so yeah, I think, I think you're good to go. And I think that the cables that you paid for are great quality. So at the very least, you don't, lose any quality by doing the path that you went down. So certainly no regrets there. Next, in the latest news update, I said that the Dreamcast component cables might fix some issues I had with the Dreamcast video output in the past. Just curious on what I think about these console specific component cables. So 
Um, that's an interesting question, and I'll try to not make it too complicated. I'll, I'll oversimplify, in fact. Basically, when you have a converter like the RGB to comp, which is an excellent converter, by the way, but that is designed to take any signal that's RGBS and convert it to component video. It has to be compatible with a very wide range of consoles and signals. And, and to, I mean, it's a kind of a complicated thing to do and to pull off. And in fact, if you go back and look at some of the higher end stuff from the 2000 eras of RGB or VGA to component, you often find that they're not as good because they were only designed for TV signals, never really with video games in mind. So it's a very good converter. However, when you now take that same circuit and you nail that down to the very specific signals and voltages that are coming out of each console, you absolutely have the potential to get a better output. That doesn't mean it is better. I've done a bunch of tests on this and sometimes I found, you know, very expensive coax shielded RGB SCART cables through the RGB to comp using HD retrovision RCA cables into a, a capture card to be exactly the same quality as just getting an HD retrovision cable. And sometimes I've seen the HD retrovisions be a hair better. They're never bad, but I do think the potential for getting them tweaked is there. And I think the Dreamcast is a perfect example because there are two sets of signals the 480p 31 kilohertz and then 15 kilohertz 240p or 480i so two completely different signal types three different resolutions and the way the dreamcast outputs the video signal is very weird which is why you, there's some compatibility issues with some monitors and stuff so i think the console-specific component cables absolutely have the potential to solve problems and thereby maybe be a little bit better, but you don't always need them. And I certainly would never say it would be a bad setup to use an RGB to comp instead. In fact, I have a matrix switcher down below the D32 over there that I have the RGB to comp and the comp to RGB, and I have it looped through the switch so that depending on the monitor I go through, I could convert whatever the console's output to either component or RGB, depending on what I need. And I love them. So, you know, I just want to be very clear. Zero shade to these generic, like when I say generic converters, generic signal, all console signal converters, I love them, but there is potential for slightly better when you nail it down per console. Lopo has a stock front-loading NES, and they want to start playing more Famicom cartridges on it, and they're looking for a good converter to do that. And the question I have for you, or the two questions are, are you going to be dealing with Famicom expansion audio at all? And are you going to be using some of the taller cartridges that were released over the years? There weren't too many of them compared to the other Famicom carts, but the EverDrive N8 Pro Famicom edition is that sized. If your answer is... I don't really care about expansion audio and I, and I have original size Famicom carts. The one I reviewed from Amazon a couple years ago is awesome. It's less than 20 bucks. It worked totally fine. You place the Famicom cartridge inside it and then it kind of turns it into an NES cart, but you don't have to open the Famicom cartridge. It just kind of looks like a Famicom cart or it looks like an NES cart. It's very cool. I'll, I'll leave a link to it so you can see pictures if you're interested. However, you link to one from Muramasa Entertainment that is great, but you're going to need to find some solution in order to, to get this inside your NES. One of the things you could do is take the shell off of your Famicom cartridge, put it into this, and then put it totally inside an NES cart. 
But I'm not sure if that's what you want to do. Do you actually want to convert Famicom carts to NES carts, or do you want to just use them on your front loader? Uh, you could probably build that one into a different kind of case or add a ribbon to it like some of the other ones, but uh, I, I'm not sure if that's the one, if the one from Muramasa would be the right fit for what you're looking to do. Seems like an awesome product. It just, you got to kind of figure out what it is you want for you. So unless you know for a fact that you're going to be using some of the taller cartridges, I would just get the Amazon one. It's cheap enough that you could just say, oh, this was great and I'll figure out something else. Um, but if you do need the taller ones, or if you want to try to figure out a different solution, maybe you 3D print your own case for it or something and attach a little ribbon to it, or I don't really know, but the Muramasa one would be good. Now, the only thing that you have to worry about with Famicom Expansion Audio is you're going to have to either mod your NES or use one of those boards that plugs into the bottom of the shell, so you'd have to cut the little tab out of the bottom. I don't really think I would call that a cut mod. I think it's not a no cut mod, but it's one of the things that was designed to be removed in case there should ever be an expansion thing added to it. So that's kind of a gray area for me that I'd be okay with. So you could do it like that. You could mod it on the inside. Um, but either way, if you're just looking for plug and play solutions, I mean, you're not going to get Famicom expansion audio without doing something to the NES. So that's something to think about. If you want more uh, info on the expansion stuff, let me know, but I'll leave a link to both of those converters. Jason Guffey had seen a bunch of people setting up emulators and front ends for retro games running on CRTs so that they could cycle attract modes. And they were wondering if I had ever remembered talking about anything like this. They'd love to set one up on their home arcade. Yes, and in fact, I talked about the one that was released for the Mister that I think you could just get by enabling extras in the update all script now. I could be wrong about that one, but it serves a couple of purposes. First and foremost, by cycling different games and running their attract modes, it severely reduces the chance of burn-in. So, like, for example, if you have one game, like a single game arcade cabinet, and you just turn that on every morning and you turn it off every night and it's just cycling through the attract mode every day, you're eventually gonna burn that in. But if you flip on your multi-cade system, your Mr. Cade, whatever else, and your arcade machine is constantly cycling through different attract modes of different games. So basically loading up a new core, plays the attract mode for like two minutes, then load up a different core, et cetera, et cetera. Even if some of the games that it lands on has a still title screen, it's only a couple of minutes, you don't really have to worry. So it's great burn-in protection while leaving your arcade machine on, but then you have the advantage of leaving the arcade machine on. Maybe you're having a bunch of people over and you want something that looks cool and inviting to play with, or maybe you just look at it as another piece of artwork in your room that you sometimes game on, but you also want to fire up to just have cool stuff going. So I really love things like that. And while I've seen stuff with software emulation like that over the years, uh, I've really been getting a lot into the Mister the past couple of years. So the, those are the ones that I would recommend. So check out in the update all script if um, if that's something you could enable. And if not, I mean, I definitely have seen Lou talk about it a few times in some of his videos. So I'm not sure. Maybe uh, if somebody remembers in the comments, I could definitely update the links to whatever people find. Sorry, I do these off the top of my head. So um, I, I like them to sound natural and conversational and not like a robot. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go and search through Lou's videos for an hour trying to figure it out. I think I'd rather just have the conversation, or maybe I'm just lazy. I don't know. But next, Jason bought the TestSmart 16 by one 4K60 HDMI switch recently after hearing Mark from My Life and Gaming mention it on stream. Uh, it was on sale for about 25% off at one point. So 
it seemed like something to buy on a whim and they bought it and they don't really need it right now, but they want to know if uh, what I think about it and I've tested it before, if I've tested it before. So I've not tested it. And my general opinion on stuff like this is it's probably going to work fine. Uh, what I would absolutely double check is if you have a time sleuth lag test it, but I cannot imagine a basic 16 by one HDMI switch in introducing latency. It's just, it's not processing the video. It doesn't say scaling in the description. So I really think that you would, I mean, a 99.9999% chance that that thing's gonna be zero lag. But what I would like to see is how does it handle the open source scan converter? How does it handle swapping between GameCube GC video, open source scan converter and all of that stuff? And would you need to constantly reboot it? Because I've tried a bunch of those five by one switches that worked great until they didn't. And then you got to go over and you got to reach behind and unplug the power, count to five, plug it back in, and then it works great again. But when you send it weird signals like a Super Nintendo and OSSE 5X mode, it freaks out. So that's what I would like to see. Um, so that's if you want to make sure that you test it before the return period's up, that's exactly what I would do. Set up a GameCube with GC video, set up an SNES 5X through your OSSC, and you know whatever else you got and cycle between them. See if audio drops, just kind of test everything that you can and go from there. But um, I, I really, if I were to set up and test it, I would do it just that, but I'm also backlogged for at least weeks, but it's probably months at this point. So while I would normally say, yeah, send it over and I'll see what I can do with it, it would just sit here. And I think the most important thing for you personally is to test this before the return period's up. So if Mark from My Life in Gaming says it works great, then I would trust it. But what I don't trust is that two of them are gonna be identical to each other. What if Mark bought his a year and a half ago before the part shortage, and now these things are made with different parts because the company had no other choice? It's a guess, by the way, as, as complete speculation, maybe TestSmart nailed it down and they got everything perfect. But you know, when you're spending a couple hundred bucks on something, I would take a few moments to test it before the return period's up just in case. But um, thanks for the offer. Seacon was finally able to get a hold of a DE10 Nano for the Mr. Project, and they were wondering what I would recommend for video out options. They want to be able to use HDMI on their OLED, but also RGB or component on their BVM, and only one needs to be used at a time. Can they get away with an HDMI to component adapter, or should they go with the analog or digital Mr. I.O. board? So my answer to you is mostly the same as what I said for Lena Blue before. So just go back to the timestamps, look up the first Mr. thing. But I have a very specific recommendation for your setup. So HDMI into your OLED's easy. Just set it, the Mr. INI file to your preferred resolution. Make sure to set it to all the lowest latency options first. If everything works, cool. If not, you know, dial that back. So that's pretty easy. But for analog out, you specifically said you only need to use one output at a time. So the whole thing I was talking about with streaming doesn't apply to you. And you also said that you're gonna be using it on your BVM, but you specifically mentioned HDMI to component. Those are not gonna work right for direct video. However, using an HDMI to VGA, like that Ranky adapter that I always talk about, 
you could then just use a VGA to BNC cable, and as long as you have composite sync set to one and direct video on, that'll output RGBS. So all you need is that very cheap Ranky adapter, I think it was eight bucks or something like that, and a VGA to BNC cable, and that's it. And then you just go right into your BVM, and that should be totally fine. Um, it is gonna be a slightly higher voltage, but your BVMs, I mean, every BVM I've ever seen should be able to handle that. So double and triple check your service manual maybe, but I, I can't, or not even your service manual, just the regular manual, but I can't imagine a BVM that wouldn't be able to handle that voltage on the sync line. It should be totally fine. So yeah, that's what I would do. And then I would just hold the button combo to select which of your INI files, the direct video or the alternative that you want, depending on if you're going to your OLED or direct video through there. But I think that's a good choice for you. Um, also, with 480p signals, is there a significant quality difference between a PVM 20L5 or a 20-inch A or D series BVM versus a consumer-grade Trinitron PC monitor? Sort of. So you're always going to get better calibration options through PVMs, and then BVMs are going to have the most calibration options. But I did a stream a while back where I took my 20L5 PVM, and I took a very nice uh, VGA monitor that I picked up. It's still over there, actually. It's a Gateway 2000 Vivitron 21. It's, it's basically the same thing. And I ran uh, Dreamcast Daytona, and they looked very, very close. Now, the PVM 20L5 was definitely better. My A20 was even better than that. But the way I had to, to notice that was by taking close-up pictures and doing side-by-side -side comparisons. It absolutely is not one of those things where I could walk by and be like, oh, that's the BVM. Oh, that's the, you know, that's the consumer VGA monitor. It wasn't that massive of a difference. And the price was, though, that's for sure. Any kind of multi-sync PVM monitor is a, probably a multi-thousand dollar thing these days, at least a grand uh, multi if you've already had it serviced, where I still find VGA CRT monitors for free all the time. You just got to kind of keep your eyes open. And anything that's labeled for retro gaming is probably the same junk as, you know, you know, not tested by at your own risk. It's probably the same thing. It's just one's free and one's somebody figured out how to jack up the prices. Now, of course, there's exceptions. If you find people in the community that have taken the time to find one, cleaned out, verify that it works, verify the brightness doesn't need to be cranked up all the way, then yeah, I would very happily pay 50, 100, maybe 200 bucks for it if it was really awesome, to be honest. But it really comes down to price for me. Now, you said you already own a BVM, so you don't certainly don't need to really worry about any of this, but if you were just talking for your own curiosity, I think my answer is probably good enough. That said, though, if you have the opportunity to pick up a free 20-inch or 14 or 24 or whatever VGA CRT monitor that looks like it's in decent condition, pick it up because having a spare for free or near free, as long as you have the space, is never gonna be a bad thing. And if something should ever happen to your BVM, as long as the other tube is bright enough, you could always use Mr. in direct video doubled with scan lines on, and it's gonna look pretty much identical. So it's a, it's kind of a, an interesting thing, but yeah, hopefully the answer was pretty clear. Well, that's it for this week. I saw that there weren't too many questions this week, so I kind of lingered on a few of them a little longer just to dig in and get some details. And, you know, I kind of like both. You know, I like sometimes just really digging into a question and maybe even over explaining just to kind of 
present different sides to it. But I also really like when there's a whole bunch of questions in a week and I got to just get through them and get to the answers. So I don't know. Let me know if you have a preference for any one or the other. I mean, I do realize I'm a bit too wordy sometimes, but sometimes I think it's the right move for some of these answers where it really isn't just a yes or no answer. But anyway, if you're new to these Q&As and you would like to participate, ask any question you like wherever it is that you support. Just please ask them in the latest Q&A post because I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I really just like answering them in real time like you see me do here. But any of the support services are eligible for these. It just so happens that very often only the questions are on Patreon. But regardless of where you support or if you're not in a position to support monthly and you still click on affiliate links you are the best thank you so much for keeping all of these going and i'll see you next week